Welcome to the Redeemer Central podcast. Redeemer Central is a church community in Belfast seeking to practice the way of Jesus and work for the peace and good of our city. For more information, please visit RedeemerCentral.com. So yeah, over the past few weeks we've been looking at what kind of a church we are so if you can think back, we looked at being a Jesus-centered church, family-focused church, a church that is kingdom-oriented, a kingdom that's ancient future. And it's been a real blessing to go through this together. But this morning, Stephanie is going to uh, wrap up that little series with talking about grace and about being a grace-saturated church. And to be honest, I could, I could think of no one better to, to speak on this subject because there's an old saying, um, you've got to practice what you preach. And uh, certainly this lady, she not only speaks on grace, but she absolutely lives it. And so many, many of us in this room have been healed and nourished and enriched all the more through her ministry. And so we're so thankful for her. So let's just pray for Stephanie before we loose her and let her go. <laughs> so Lord, today we ask you that you would draw close to Stephanie now and may the meditation on her heart and the words on her lips be acceptable in your sight. And what we know not teach us and what we have not give us, and what we are not make us, in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Um, no, I'm on. Yeah, I'll give you that. Um, thank you for that very kind introduction, um, John. Um, anyone who knows me knows that I am a, a doggy person. You're either a doggy person or a cat person. We're doggy people. We also have a cat, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> And I was out in the park this morning, as usual, and I have my dog walking where, uh, the kids would call, they used to call it, do you have to come to school in your park clothes? <laughs> and I used to say, well, you could walk home. Um, gentle parenting wasn't a thing when I was raising kids, thank God. And uh, anyway, I was in my park clothes, and I was just in my usual vibe, and it was about eight o'clock this morning, and I walked past these two dog-walking women, and they were stunning, like stunning. Coordinated wear, coffees, hair washed, full makeup, and they were beautiful. And I walked past them and, and thought, and went immediately into this, oh my goodness, why can't you be a beautiful dog-walking woman? <laughs> you know, you're looking like you slept in the park. And I walked on, and then I met Molly, who is a two-year-old Labrador, and Molly bounced up to me and planted her two great feet on my chest. <laughs> and then Monty, our dog, obviously in a moment of rivalry, threw himself onto my chest. And as I walked away looking at four muddy paws across my chest, I thought, this is why I wear park clothes, <laughs> because my moment with Molly was worth the laundry. So I will never be that beautiful, styled dog walker. I will be me. And I need to be at ease with that and not berate myself because I can't be those other people. And that is what I want to talk about today when I talk about grace. Because we can talk all we want about the value of grace for our community. But unless I imbibe it, unless I live it, and it becomes my identity, we will never show grace. Does that make sense? 
And so this morning, I don't want to teach about the value of grace. I want to speak to our identity as the beloved. Because that, I believe, will transform us. And when we are transformed, that will transform the community. Is anyone else here in the back thing? Is it weird? It's a what? Oh, that's fine. What? You thought it was you too, okay. You see, we're all the same, yeah. So we are, as, as John said, we've been doing this series of values. We've talked about Jesus-centered, ancient, future-fruited, family, spirit-filled, and kingdom-oriented last week, and this morning, grace-filled. And all these values require us as a community to imbibe them and to live them. Only then do we as a corporate identity show them to the world. We live out these values and then those that we have the privilege who join us on the journey experience it as their lived reality and in doing so we all become more like the one that we follow. And so I want to start with this. this uh, I have this written in the flyleaf of my diary, Richard Rohr. Every year I ask the Lord to give me a word for the year or to give me a a kind of a phrase or a mantra to muse on, and this is 2023's. I am trapped by certain grace, and I am enclosed in the constant need for mercy. And every day when I open my diary, I spend a moment musing on that reality. And I believe that as I remember my own constant need for mercy, and the Lord shows me the ways that I mess up every day, and I repent of them, one of my favorite daily practices to repent of where I've gone wrong. It allows me, it invites me to be more merciful to those I meet. It invites me to remember that I am literally trapped by grace. I can go nowhere to escape it. And so as a follower of Jesus and a follower of the way, I hope that every day I let go of more and more of my own ego and my needs and my wants and I remind myself of my constant need of mercy and that I am surrounded by grace. And I hope that is where we can go as a community. I've worked for over 20 years as a, as a therapist, as you will know, and, and I could sum up the themes of, of why people come to therapy. And it sometimes takes them a while to get to what the core stuff is. Um, and sometimes it takes us quite a bit of work to get there. But one of the very common themes is the core belief, I am not lovable. I'm not lovable. And maybe someone comes because they've had relationship difficulties, maybe because of childhood experiences, perhaps issues around their identity. And the core idea is, well, if my parent or my parents can't love me, then there is something in me that is wrong and I am not lovable. And the, the beauty of the therapeutic journey that we go on is inviting someone to see their identity, to see their belovedness, and to recognize that family and parents and communities act out of their stuff, their brokenness. And, so, and I meet people as adulthood all the time, and perhaps when they live into their identity, suddenly they experience rejection by those that brought them into this world. And that is startlingly painful. Startlingly painful. And yet, 
The work that we do is to invite them to think differently, not only about themselves and their belovedness, but also about those around them. And so Henry knew, and it'll come up behind me, God will be to us as he is when we preach him to others. What we say to others about God and faith is how he will be to us. And this is perhaps where our theology around our identity and therefore our praxis is wrong. We preach what we believe about God and it is only when we experience and believe our true identity in God that we can practice love and grace towards ourselves primarily and then towards others. And I think that's where perhaps we get stuck. We can talk about being grace-filled, but we're only grace-filled if we give it to ourselves. Jesus talked about love one another as you love yourselves. And sometimes we're not comfortable with that. We're not sure what the outworking of that is, but it is a basis of knowing who you are. The story of the Bible is about God relentlessly pursuing a relationship with humanity. He constantly strives to show us favor, even when we betray him or turn our backs on him. Throughout the Bible, the story of God, we see the God of the universe find ways to reconcile with a hard-hearted and rebellious humanity. And that's what it means when, God, when we say that God is gracious. I love the beauty in the story of God where the first person in scripture who names God was Hagar, a woman, a slave, a single parent. In that culture, she was the lowest of the low. And yet she, she named God and she said, I have seen the God who has seen me. There couldn't have been anyone lower in that culture. And yet she knew that she had been seen by the one who sees her. And I'm going to quote my, famous, my, my favorite neurobiologist, Bessel van der Kolk. Every child is born looking for a person who is looking for them. And that need continues throughout all of our lives. And I love it when neuroscience, which is what I like to read about, when it matches biblical truths. Hagar named God, I have seen the one who sees me. And now all these thousands of years later, we finally worked out that that was truth. That every one of us was a little baby once born looking for someone, looking for you. And that continues as long as you live. I want you to think this week and pause to consider who really sees you. Do you allow yourself time to sit in silence before the beautiful one? And let all of your mess, all of your pain, all of your grief, all of your sin, a word we sometimes don't like to use, do you lay yourself open to the beautiful one who sees you? Do you have a Jesus with skin on who sees you, who knows you, and who reminds you of your belovedness? And as Nguyen has said, the story of the Bible is how God relentlessly pursues us. And so the question remains, what is my identity? Who am I, and how does that impact my life day to day? How do I live out of the story of God in this day at this time? And so the Edenic plan, the Garden of Eden, was that we would live in good relationship with one another and with creation. As you all know, the fall happened, humanity wanted to take control and we went our own way. And the remainder of the story of God, as told to us in the Bible, 
is the story of God's rescue plan, of how he wanted his children back. And the story of God in Genesis begins with the story of creation, and in Revelation it ends with the story of the new creation, that we are all to be restored and to live in good relationship with one another and with creation. And in the days of climate change and the days that we're living in, I think the call is on us again and again, louder and louder. Are we living by God's design for the world? Are we taking care of creation? Are we taking care of this beautiful world that we were given? And what are we doing as individuals and as a community to care for this beautiful world? When Jesus was on earth, the, the book of the, of the Torah that he quoted the most was Deuteronomy, the fifth book. And he, when he was in the wilderness and he was being tested, that is what he used to resist temptation. He also spoke of loving our neighbors as ourselves, always pointing us to the love of the Father. And I have been reading and studying recently the book of Deuteronomy because it's a beautiful book and it gives us a template for who we are as the people of God. It was Moses mediated between the children of Israel and God for 40 years. And the book of Deuteronomy is essentially three of his sermons or his preaches that we like to call them um, in a book. And he's getting them ready and he's constantly pointing to the mediator who is coming, Jesus. In Deuteronomy 18 and 18, he talks about them. But he has done his work. He has said this, and I want to read this part because this is who we are. He speaks to the children of Israel. And for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more than number in number than any other people because you were the least of all peoples. And here's the nub. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You're not special. You weren't chosen because you were great in number. You weren't chosen because there's something amazing about you. He is instilling in the people your specialness is because he chose you and he loves you. It's not about who you are or what you are or what you have. And that message is still the same. So that is so freeing if we get that because it makes us let go of our ego, of our need to control, our need to be right, our need to be in charge, our need to gather. We let it all go because we don't have to prove anything to God. We are his children and the chosen ones. And there is something so freeing in that. And if you go on to read the book of Deuteronomy, there's warning in it as well. And I think the warnings are important for us to pay attention to. Moses is saying to them, you're going into a land that you got, didn't get by your own power. You're going to live in houses that you didn't build, fields you didn't plant, and you might forget that it was God who gave you it all. That is the risk. You will worship false idols. He goes on to talk about that. And Moses is telling the children of Israel, remember the story that you were born into. 
Remember the story you are a part of and remember that it is his grace that has been poured out upon you. It is nothing to do with you or what you've done. And Deuteronomy also describes later on in it the beautiful image of the final feasting of the children of Israel. And I think if we go forward in the, in the story of God, Jesus talks about the final banquet, probably one of my favorite descriptions of the kingdom. The man, the parable who is, he's having a feast. He says, go, go out into the highways and the byways. And probably my four favorite words in scripture, compel them to come. Compel them to come. The people who are on the margins who don't think that they belong. The people who are at the edge of society that no one cares for. The ones, they all came up, you know the parable well, we've spoken on it many times. But in the great banquet, in the final reckoning, compel them to come. Those are, those are definitely my four favorite words in scripture because it is a reminder that it is not about who we are or what we are or what we've done. The work is always from the Lord. He is coming, he is seeking, he is relentlessly pursuing us. Compel them to come. So don't forget your identity and live out of that grace. So what does that look like in these days? Redeemer, what does that look like for you and for me? If I live, if we live, what are my idols? What are the idols that I am at risk of? Ego, success, individualism, power. The warnings that were in Deuteronomy to the children of Israel are still relevant to us because we will all have our own idols. And if I am living and choosing to continue to live as a follower of Jesus who believes in the biblical story, then my life has got to look different to my friends who do not as yet follow Jesus. My bank account has got to look different to others. When my money comes in at the beginning of the month, 10% goes out. It's not easy, it's painful sometimes, it's hard, but that is a biblical principle. When I look at my week, when we look at our weeks, if all of my week is taken up with myself or my needs or my care, which is very easy to do, am I really following a biblical principle of serving the other? Of serving the other? Am I really following a biblical principle of living in certain grace and offering it to others by my hands and my feet? And, and I say that you know, I would be happy to talk to anyone who wants to unwrap some of this stuff. The tithing and the giving is a big thing. I've made messes with it over the years. I've done it. I bought, literally bought into the idea that if I did it, we would be more wealthy because some of that went on in the 80s teaching theology. It was a kind of a prosperity thing gone wrong. If I give more, then I'm going to be wealthy. Rubbish. It didn't work for us. <laughs> we give because it's his and we are literally just stewarding it. If I look at my week and I have no time to give someone in need, then I've got my week wrong and that happens to me a lot and I get called out on that. I call myself out on that. And I think in this community, if we are truly following the ways of Jesus and becoming the disciples 
that he has called us to be and we're living out of our grace, then our weeks and our time and our money will look different. So what are your idols? Your idols will be different to mine and that's okay. We're all going to be different. If you want to read a little bit more on grace, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes beautifully on cheap grace versus costly grace. And it's a very good paper that I would commend to you. He talks about how cheap grace, which actually is what most of us want, it's forgiveness without repentance. It's baptism without discipline. It's communion without confession. And it is grace without discipleship, the cross and without Jesus. But costly grace, the one that Bonhoeffer describes and calls us into is the pearl of great price that we should keep in the field. It calls us to follow and to be transformed and to live as the incarnated people of God. And that, I believe, is the invitation. And sometimes in our community as leaders, we hear a criticism that we're very good at the welcome, but we're not so good at the challenge. And and sometimes I think it's fair Because sometimes when we talk so much about grace and welcome, people think we're talking about cheap grace, that it's all fine, it's all good, and we're all going to be grand. But that's not actually biblical grace. Biblical grace means that we are transformed and we become more like the one that we follow. And that is an invitation and that is a challenge. Behind me, I love this quote from Brené Brown. Grace means that all of your mistakes now serve a purpose instead of serving a shame. And for those of us in the room who have made mistakes and who carry shame, I don't think there's any of us perhaps that don't. There's something redemptive about this idea that when we step into the rivers of grace that is afforded to us through the Lord, The things that used to cause us shame now serve a purpose. Now serve a purpose. And we can let go of the shame. Shame, I fully believe, is possibly the the most powerful toxic strategy of the enemy because it causes us to be depleted and to stay silent and to live on our own. And we are called to community and relationship and to freedom. John started with a quote from Nadia Boltzweber. I perhaps want to, this is one of my final, God simply keeps reaching down into the dirt of our humanity and resurrecting us from the graves we dig ourselves through our violence, our lies, our selfishness, our arrogance, our addictions. And God keeps loving us back to life over and over. That, I believe, is the work of grace That has been the work of grace in my life. And I know that as I look around this room, it's been the work of grace in many of our lives. And I believe that is the invitation, that as we live, as I began, as we live out of that idea that we are surrounded by certain grace and aware of our constant need of mercy, perhaps then we are a community who imbibe that belief and walk it into these streets and the city all around us. As we come to the table, I want to end with a quote from Frederick. I'm not going to attempt his his surname because I usually get it wrong. Listen to your life. See it for the fathomless mystery that it is, in the boredom and in the pain of it. 
no less than in the excitement and gladness. Touch, taste, smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of it. Because in the last analysis of it all, all moments are key moments and life itself is grace. I had the privilege as a nurse way back sitting with those who were dying and talking to them about their lives and when you're facing death, you've nowhere else to go and, and everything becomes very pertinent and, and powerful. And the one thing I learned as a very young student nurse and as a, a, in my early 20s, which was when I was working as a nurse, that when people got to the end of their lives, the, the scars that they carried, the pain, the, the things that they would never, ever have chosen to happen to them were their deepest joy, source of joy. It didn't happen in the moment. But when people started to talk with me and share their lives, I suddenly realized, and I got this idea in my head, and it stayed with me, and I've seen it again and again, that, the, that life itself is grace, and every moment is grace. It doesn't mean we don't have difficult days. It doesn't mean that there are things that we would never have chosen. We all walk roads we would never have chosen, but in it is beauty and grace and the mercy of the beautiful one. And that, I believe, is the invitation to the table. That as you come this morning and as we take our time, stop and think about your life. Think about the moments that you're in right now. You might be in the boredom or the pain of it. You might be in excitement or gladness. But think about what it is that it's calling you into, the hidden and the holy. Because when you come to the end of your days, I imagine we will all agree it was all grace. Let's stand and let's begin to worship. As we say every week in this community, all are welcome at the table. It is not our table. It is the table of the Lord's. And so the invitation that we offer you is not ours, it is his. And so as you come this morning, I would invite you to, to pause and, and to think of where you see the grace in your life this week. What are the moments that you have walked that have reminded you of the grace of God? And hold on to those, mark those. Because in the weeks ahead, you may not see them. But I believe that the challenge is that as we walk and accept our own need for grace and mercy, we will walk it out to one another in this beautiful community that we have gathered and onto these streets and into the nation. Let's worship. I, w I was so struck as I, I watched people come to the table and I can see grace everywhere. I can see grace everywhere in this community. I see grace when people who've been hurt by church come back and try again. I see grace in a young man who, whose ego would say, work on your career, and he's heading to Lesbos for a year. I see grace in forgiveness. I see grace in compassion. I see people who have been hurt and have had terrible wrongs done to them and, and they continue to come. 
and they continue to follow the beautiful one. And that is story after story. We are all stories that are constantly being written. And this morning, if you require grace for the story that you're currently in, there are people here, myself, Dave, there's plenty of leaders about. You don't even need a leader. You grab the person who's with you. And we would love to pray for you and speak a blessing on you because we all need grace every day. And if that is your story right now, we would want to serve you well. So just in these moments, don't rush away. If you need to talk or you need someone to stand with you, that would be our privilege and our joy. But as we end, let's pray a blessing on, our, on ourselves and on our weeks. Father, we thank you for your, your works of grace in all of our lives. We thank you for those moments where you have been right beside us. And sometimes we have known you through human hands. And sometimes we have simply known it was you when we look at creation. And we catch a glimpse of the bigger story that we are a part of. And in these moments, Father, as our hearts are soft and our ears are open, be to us as we need. Not simply so that we can be restored, but so that we can walk your grace out into this city and beyond. That we can be your grace and your mercy this week to our neighbors, to our friends, to our co-workers, to all who we meet. Because... In showing your grace, we invite them to meet the beautiful one and to serve him. So be with us now and thank you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. In your beautiful, precious and life-giving name we pray. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen.